Oh, well, good morning, Father. Uh, we are just so thankful to be here with you today. Thank you for your spirit that uh, is in um, in us and among us and uh, in your word. Lord, we just trust you to teach us this morning. Thank you for this gift uh, and this opportunity. Lord, I know even <laughs> looking over this chapter this past week, I was challenged and convicted and repenting. And uh, so I can only imagine what Kim went through. <laughs> she was studying, uh, preparing for this. Thank you so much for her uh, her diligence, her hard work, her willingness to, um, yeah, to approach this uh, passage uh, in weakness and humility and uh, listening to your spirit. So we trust what you've given her today is what we need to hear. And uh, we just thank you for how you're going to use her. Uh, give her your humble confidence as she teaches us, Lord, um, that she would um, recognize uh, your spirit at work in her and uh, just, yeah, just really walk by faith as she um yeah, digs into this challenging chapter. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for this opportunity to be together as sisters. Uh, help us in our groups afterwards, Lord, to encourage each other. And um, yeah, we just are so grateful we get to grow together in this way. And we pray the, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can everybody hear me? Is that okay? All right. All right, so as we look at Second Samuel 3, I want you to keep three things in mind. The first is that God works through flawed people. The second, God can bring people into line with his purposes. And the third, God can use evil plans for good. <clears throat> Our chapter this week starts with a very poignant statement. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. After Saul's death, rather than swearing allegiance to David, Abner, the commander of Saul's army and his cousin, takes Ishbosheth, Saul's son, across the Jordan River and sets him up as king over Israel on his own authority. And David is made king of Judah, appointed by God. As we begin our story, the writer adds a genealogy of sorts for David's young growing family. David was in Hebron for seven and a half years, and in that time he had six sons by six different women. Honestly, I wanted to just kind of skip through that part um, because although I believe that it's placed there to help demonstrate how David's kingdom is increasing, namely through sons to strengthen his line and position, it unsettles me a little bit to read that David, the man after God's own heart, has six wives. It just doesn't sit right with me. My inner cynic gets all up in arms and, and I didn't want to go down any rabbit holes, um, but I couldn't just gloss over it. Thankfully, there were a lot of great commentators who helped talk me down and give me two points to consider. First, don't mistake a statement of fact as God condoning something. These are simply the facts. It's not God endorsing David's choices. And second, do not interpret scripture out of context, not just within a chapter or within a book, but we need to look at the whole breadth of scripture as it relates to marriage. God makes clear his design for marriage in Genesis 2. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus reaffirms this in Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. One man, one woman for life. Enter sin, and life gets a lot more complicated. God's people do what is right in their own hearts, and they disobey what God has set up as good and holy. Every instance of polygamy in the Bible that I can easily recall recounts some sort of disastrous result. Abraham and Sarah don't trust God, so Abraham has a child with Hagar. Laban deceives Jacob into marrying sisters. And while Leah gives Jacob sons, Rachel is the one that he loves. Hannah is tormented by Penina until God relieves her suffering. And there are catastrophic consequences for the kids as well. Ishmael almost dies in the wilderness when him and his mother are forced to leave their home. Joseph is thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery when Reuben convinces the other brothers not to kill him. There are half-siblings raping and killing and conspiring against each other. And when we look at David's children, we see rape, murder, conspiracy, attempts to overthrow his kingship, estrangements, and death. Some of David's marriages were for political gain, to conclude treaties and gain allies and cement relations. All of these things God had warned his people against. In Deuteronomy 7, God forbids his people from marrying foreigners, knowing that their loyalty to God would be compromised by unbelievers. And in Deuteronomy 17, he forbids his kings from having many wives. Yet David does both of these in direct violation of God's word. So my next question is, why does God allow this flawed man to continue to be the leader of his people? Shouldn't this disqualify him from being king? But frankly, God's only option is flawed men. Flawed people. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we must not be disillusioned to believe that because God chose David, that he was somehow more than human in his behavior. Two weeks ago, we saw a glimpse of David's heart when he mourned over the death of his beloved friend, Jonathan, and even Saul, God's anointed, who had mercilessly tried to kill him for years. And this week, we will again see David's heart in his dealings with Abner. David is a man after God's own heart, but he is a man who is going to fail. As a husband, as a father, as a leader, he will fail. But this book is about our covenant God, who chose David to be his covenant king with all of his flaws. And throughout 2 Samuel, we will see God bring him to repentance and forgive him his sins, just as he forgives us our sins. This book will also point us to Jesus the only true, good, and perfect king. Now we get to the meat of our story with our four main characters, Ishbosheth, David, Abner, and Joab. 
While the houses of David and Saul are feuding, we see that Abner is amassing for himself quite a lot of power and influence. He was successfully usurping power from Ishbosheth, who was really just a puppet king to begin with. Abner was pulling all the strings. Ishbosheth is completely dependent upon him to maintain his position as king. Yet in his foolishness, we see in verse 7 that he accuses Abner of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines, Rizpah. We don't know if this is true. Abner never denies it, but he is also outraged by the accusation. Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Basically saying, do you think that I am such a vile creature, a scavenger, that I would be used by David to bring down, to bring about your destruction? Abner has done nothing but be loyal to Ishbosheth and to the house of Saul. He easily could have removed him from power if he, that had been his desire. And here he stands being accused of a heinous crime by the king he had faithfully served, even if not always for the purest intentions. A king's harem were protected citizens. They were not to be touched by anyone other than the king. And when the king died, there were two options. They could either be set aside and never touched by another man for the rest of their lives, or they could be handed down to the next king. Either way, Abner had no business being involved with this woman. Intimacy with one of the king's harem was tantamount to an overthrow. This would have been seen as an act of treason and would have equated to Abner declaring himself as ruler over Israel, a clear and present threat to Ishbosheth. This is the catalyst that Abner needs to turn him against Ishbosheth, and he vows that he will see it, see to it that the kingdom is turned over to David. In verse 9, we get a glimpse of, into Abner's true feelings. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. So all along, Abner had been in direct violation to God's will. He knew that David was God's anointed, yet he was working against God in maintaining Saul's line as leaders. No doubt believing that he had more to gain personally in a Saulian kingdom than he did in a Davidic one. Now he prays that God will bring judgment on him if he does not see to it that David becomes king of all of Israel, just as he had known that God intended. Ishbosheth is frozen in fear, perhaps realizing what chain of events his accusation has put into motion. We can only assume that revenge is what spurs Abner to turn the kingdom over to David, rather than a sudden change of heart. After all, in everything that we've learned about Abner, it seems that his own selfish ambition is what fuels him. I don't quite understand why Abner seems to be the one wielding all the power to determine who rules over Israel. But I do know that the Lord makes it his business to use even those that oppose him to bring about his will. Abner leaves Ishbosheth's court and sends word to David. Maybe he can swing his loyalty and somehow salvage some power in David's kingdom by garnering support for David throughout Israel. David's response is positive, but he will not negotiate until his wife, Michael, is returned to him. Michael was David's first wife, Saul's daughter. In 1 Samuel 18, David had paid the bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins, 
this was what Saul requested. He actually gave him 200 in order to marry Michael. We know, according to 1 Samuel 18, that at one time Michael did love David. In 1 Samuel 19, Michael actually helps him escape from Saul when he tries to kill him for the third time. She lowers him down out of a window and then makes up his bed to look like he's sick and sleeping when David's men come to inquire. Perhaps this is the act that fueled Saul to give her to another man to punish both her and David. We don't know how long Michael had been married to Paltiel or if David had ever tried to reconcile with her before this or what Michael's feelings are at this point. We also don't know David's motives. It's possible that she's his first love and that he really does want her back simply because he loves her. It's also possible that David saw Michael as a bargaining chip, believing if he once again was seen as a son-in-law of Saul, the people would be more willing to accept him as their new king. Imagine if he and Michael had a child together, an heir to the throne that was a direct blood relative to Saul. That would even further solidify his place as the rightful king of Israel in the eyes of the people. What we do know is that culturally, David had the right to demand Michael back. David had been forced to abandon her in order to to preserve his life from Saul. And in a situation such as this, the wife would be lawfully returned to the husband who had fled. Neither Abner nor Ishbosheth object to the request. Only Paltiel seems to be distressed by the situation, weeping all the way until Abner sends him home. There's no mention of Michael's feelings, but we do know that the woman who loved David in 1 Samuel 18 and chose him over her father in 1 Samuel 19 despises him by 2 Samuel 6. In addition to returning Michael, Abner speaks to the elders of Israel and specifically the tribe of Benjamin, which was Saul's own tribe, who would reasonably offer the most opposition to David becoming king. Verses 17 and 18 record some of the meeting. For some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. There's two interesting things about these verses. First is that Abner says, For some time the elders had wanted David to be king. Either this is true, and somehow Abner had persuaded them otherwise all this time, or he was lying and simply trying to convince the elders that this was actually their idea, which would make their agreement all the more expected. Again, we can see how conniving Abner is. And the second, the promise that Abner claims for David is not recorded anywhere else in Scripture, although it is very similar to what God told Samuel in regards to Saul being the king he would choose to save his people from the Philistines. Abner is playing on the elders' emotions here, knowing that they fear the Philistines and long for a king to protect them. It appears that Abner did not meet much resistance from Israel or Benjamin, and that things are lining up well for David to assume kingship over all of Judah and Israel. Abner and 20 of his men go to seek a meeting with David. David wants to see Israel united, and he sees Abner as a vessel in that plan. So David was gracious to him. Seeing that Abner had had a change of heart, 
and was willing, he was willing to accept his help and restore their relationship. He offers him a feast and sends him away in peace, all hostilities removed. Abner's parting words to David are, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. Even as he departs, Abner's tone is one of power. I will go and do these things so that you will have everything your heart desires. It's as if Abner has put himself in the place of God, letting the power go to his head, maybe letting his guard down too much and making promises to David that only God can fulfill. So let's consider for a minute, how are we like Abner? How do we set up our own kingdoms where we put ourselves in the place of God? Abner leaves and Joab enters the scene after a victorious raiding party, bringing many spoils. He finds out that David met with Abner, an enemy spy, and let him go. Joab is furious with David, and he criticizes him for allowing an enemy commander to come and go without being apprehended and killed. Joab speaks to David with disrespect, anger, and hostility, and his line of questioning could have been seen as a challenge to the throne. Certainly, a king would have been within his rights to remove Joab from his position, or worse. This struck me. David's honor cannot even be compared to God's, and yet I find myself being offended at how Joab speaks to him. Yet I wonder, do I ever speak to God, the true king, the creator of the universe, in the same tone? God, how could you? God, why didn't you? God, what are you doing? I know that God wants us to come to him with our hurts and our questions, but I need to check my heart when I approach the throne. Am I coming in humility? Am I approaching God with the honor that is due him? Or am I coming out of anger or self-righteousness or a sense of entitlement? Am I coming with a heart softened by the love and forgiveness of a good and holy God who is faithful? Or am I coming with a heart hardened by the walls of sin and brokenness and resentment that I have constructed? God, forgive me. Joab leaves David's presence and immediately sends word to Abner to return. Both David and Abner are ignorant of Joab's plans. Joab hates Abner for killing his brother, Asahil. But Joab also sees Abner as a threat. If Abner is in David's good graces, where does that leave Joab? A king needs only one commander-in-chief of his army. And what sort of deal was Abner striking for his service in uniting the kingdom? Is it possible that his brother's revenge is just a convenient excuse for eliminating his primary competitor? Joab wastes no time. He meets Abner within the city gate, out in the open where all the people would be gathered and where judgments would be handed down. And he murders him in the same way that his brother had died, with a sword to the stomach. Doing this at the city gate was an act of defiance in itself, a statement that Joab neither feared God nor regarded men, believing himself to be above reproach. There's two major problems with his line of thinking. First, Abner killed Joab's brother in self-defense during war, 
even using the blunt end of his sword, as we learned last week. He was being chased and more than once told Asahil to turn back, saying he didn't want to kill him for Joab's sake. Therefore, by God's law, Joab had no grounds for seeking recompense. And second, Hebron is a city of refuge. And had Abner been guilty of murder, he would have found temporary safety inside Hebron, even if Joab was justifiable in seeking revenge. Therefore, Joab killing him within the gates of Hebron was also a violation of God's laws. Upon hearing of Abner's death, David is quick to distance himself from what happened. The reunification of Israel is in process, and any association with the murder of a high official of Israel could end all negotiations. David proclaims, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Then he curses the family of Joab. From here on out, may someone in your family always be unclean or lame or without food or suffer an untimely death. These were all consequences of disobeying God that were listed out in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And on top of this, David forces Joab and Abishai, his brother, to participate in Abner's funeral. David led the funeral procession and openly mourned for Abner. Despite being against him for so long, David saw the good in Abner. David had witnessed his fidelity to Saul and his family and now had privy to Abner's desire to reunite Israel under David's rule. He regarded him as a prince and a great man. David lamented Abner's innocence. He was not bound as a criminal would have been, regardless of how Joab felt about his guilt in killing his brother. And David mourned that Abner was struck down in such a cowardly manner, rather than dying as a hero on the battlefield like he deserved. All of this does not go unnoticed by the people of Judah. David's sincerity in mourning over Abner, his lament at the graveside, and his refusal to eat all served to convince the people that his hands were truly clean in this incident, and it bolsters his support among the nation. Verse 37 says, And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put the death to death Abner, the son of Ner. The chapter concludes with David having an intimate moment with his servants. David tells them Joab and Abishai are too harsh for him, and he vows to leave their punishment to God. There's some disagreement among the commentators regarding his decision. Was David showing mercy by not executing Joab and Abishai? Or was David showing weakness by not demanding the justice that was required of the situation? As we continue in 2 Samuel, we'll find that this decision haunts David for the rest of his reign. In 1 Kings 2, as David lies on his deathbed, he calls Solomon to him. And he says, you know what Joab did to me and to Abner. You know that he shed blood in peacetime. Do not let his head go to the grave in peace, but do what is wise in your eyes to do. David showed grace and mercy to Abner by allowing him to be reconciled with him after years of fighting. And he chose to show mercy to Joab by not killing him after taking Abner's life. But where was the justice? 
David failed at that duty as king. As we continue this study, we will see how David's failure to administer the Lord's justice allowed evil to continue. A truly great kingdom must have both justice and mercy. At the cross, we find both. God pours out his grace and mercy on us, offering us forgiveness, a gift that we don't deserve, while God's justice is satisfied by the spilling of Jesus' blood as payment for all our sins. Listen to this excerpt from Romans 3 from the International Children's Bible. I like this version because it's at a third grade reading level. (laughs) So it makes it simple. All people have sinned and are not good enough for God's glory. People are made right with God by his grace, which is a free gift. They are made right with God by being made free from sin through Jesus Christ. God sent him to die in our place to take away our sins. This showed that God always does what is right and fair. God did this so that he could judge rightly and also make right any person who has faith in Jesus. Jesus represents both justice and mercy, and as God's image bearers, we all have a responsibility towards both. So where in your life do you need to show God's mercy to someone? And where do you need to stand up for justice in the name of the Lord and not allow evil to continue? This is quite literally one chapter in David's story. And we will see many stories where he rules with justice and mercy. And we will see many stories where he falls short. But in all of those, he is upheld by a faithful God who is patient and loving. The same God who remains faithful to us today, even when we fall short. Knowing that he will complete the good work he has started in us. I want to leave you with my favorite Bible verse. Um, It's a good one that we should all probably reflect on. You probably all know it. It's Micah 6, 8. For he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we can walk in your ways, and I pray that we can humbly serve you with both justice and mercy, Lord. I pray that we can lay aside our own desires and surrender to your will. Thank you that you chose to use flawed people like David and Abner and even me to further your kingdom, Lord. And Lord, above all, we thank you for Jesus, the good and perfect king who came and rescued us from sin. Amen.